You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Um, so this is the last session of the day and it's been the back day, we know that. At the same time, I feel that we are now getting to the ground matter. Um, it's not enough to allocate money, it's also extremely important to look at whether it reaches where it is supposed to reach and that's the topic of this um, session. And it's something which surprisingly for sector people at least, is often somehow overlooked. And if you look at the PIFA um, indicators, for instance, it's, it's quite striking. There's just one indicator which, which is measuring that somehow. It's not only overlooked, but also got a feeling that communities um, look at it quite differently. And that's one of the things that we're going to hear about today. Uh, some of the speakers are coming more from the sort of sector point of view, the service delivery point of view, and then we have one discussant who is actually coming from the Ministry of Finance point of view. Um, and so, whereas both of them are interested in this issue, which is like ensuring predictable funding to service delivery facilities, um, they're aware of the challenges, but they're looking at it from different anger. So it's again one of these issues around which what's needed is finding some ways of dialoguing around that and, and, and building bridges between these um, communities. Predictability can be thought of, of in, in different ways. It's about stability of budget plans over the years, but it's also about the credibility of the annual budget and the timeliness at which resources are actually reaching where they have to reach. And um, there's, there's obvious evidence that many countries have problems with ensuring um, one or the other or the three dimensions of this uh, predictability issue. Uh, Bernard is going to give a lot of examples, so I won't go into the depth, but let's say, for instance, when you have studies showing that just 1% of what schools should receive reaches the schools in Madagascar at the, at the beginning of the year, there's a big problem there. It does raise huge challenges at the level of what the school should be doing, what the health center is supposed to be doing. So we're going to hear about these two perspectives, the perspective of the service delivery and local government um, trying to provide the services and manage them, and the perspective of the uh, ministries of finance. And I have three speakers to discuss the first perspective and then one discussant to sort of bring the other perspective into light. Um, now, I'm confusing my left and my right, so sorry. There, that end, <laughs> I have Dr. Bernard Gauthier, who is a professor in the Department of Applied Economics at the um, École des Hautes Études Commerciales à Montréal, at the University of Montreal. He's an expert in public expenditure tracking surveys that are still some of the most, I mean, some of the best tools, actually, to provide the most compelling evidence that schools and health centers face predictability issues. Um, and uh, Bernard is going to present some common findings from these studies to help set the scene for, for this discussion. Um, our second speaker is Dr. Dorcas Kewanuka Henriksen. Uh, she's a research coordinator at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, but she's also a medical doctor and public health specialist and previously worked as a district health Uganda um, officer in Uganda. So it's very grounded experience that she's going to bring into the discussion. 
she's continuing to do um, research uh, on health systems in, 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 Uganda, in Uganda, and she will present some of the some of her reflections on the way uh, unreliable fund flows and the conditionality, which is an interesting aspect as well, affects district service delivery. Our third speaker is Dr. Benjamin Tsofa. Uh, he's a principal research officer and deputy director at the Kenyan Medical uh, Research Institute. So we, we stay very much in health, but um, some audience people and myself might bring some education perspective in there. Um, and I'm going to ask Dr. Tsofar to tell us about the design and the implementation of um, one mechanism that Kenya put in place some years back, direct financing, direct facility financing, and how it evolved with the big decision that was taken in 2010 and implemented since 2013 to create this set of new county, fairly autonomous county governments, um, how that changed the, 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 the setup really. And as I said, our final discussant is um, Marcel Mukeshimana, who is the Accountant General for the Government of Rwanda, uh, as you heard earlier. Rwanda, we know all uh, that it's very famous about the sort of pace at which it's implementing governance reform, including PFM reforms. Um, but it's still also a, a low-income country, and, and like many ministries in many um, countries around the world, they're facing constant challenges, balancing fiscal and fiduciary uh, controls with the demands to uh, deliver against very ambitious and driving performance targets uh, in an environment where that is very important. So uh, Mr. Mukeshimana will reflect on how the Ministry, in, uh, the Ministry of Finance and Economic Planning in Rwanda managed these challenges so far and, and what opportunities he sees uh, to improve fund flows to service delivery facilities. So without further ado, um, I'll ask Bernard to um, set the scene for us. Uh, so th thanks a lot, uh, Catherine. Uh, I, I'll, I'll just, uh, I'll, I will just give a very, very rapid overview of these uh, specific tools called the PETS, the Public Expenditure Tracking Service, I'm sure. A lot of you already know about uh, these tools uh, in your different countries or different uh, past experiences. Uh, so I'll, it, it will just be like an overview of, of some of the main findings, a little bit of, about the usefulness and some limitations of this tool. So, so it's a very specific uh, monitoring tool that has been devised, uh, which basically tries to strengthen the relationship of accountability between uh, the budgeting side and the uh, public expenditure and provider's performance. So we're trying with the PETS uh, really to uh, trace the flow of resources from uh, the, the, through the different government uh, uh, administrative system down to the providers and final users. And uh, the, the key issue being to try to determine uh, the, uh, the various uh, bottlenecks, various shortcomings in the public expenditure and the public uh, the service delivery uh, process. and. Uh, especially also to try to assess if funds are used as intended by the, uh, by the budget, by the government. So, and since their creation in, in uh, Uganda, it was the first applied in 96 in Uganda, uh, they have been implemented in more than 60 countries, typically within the sect uh, at the sector level, uh, health and education especially, but also uh, in uh, agriculture, water, etc. but also uh, to, to track uh, specific social programs uh, in, in various countries. 
so the, the pets are basically complementary to uh, the, the more uh, central uh, level type of uh, tools such as uh, PR uh, and PEFA and uh, they try to focus then on the subnational but down to the service providers and to try to move from the uh, official budget uh, figures to effective budget figures. So through in the, 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 the flow of, uh, from the policy uh, process down to uh, outcomes, the pets, would be, the, the pets are very often combined also with the QSDS, with the quantitative service delivery surveys, which uh, are, are collecting more detailed information about uh, pr the provider's characteristics, activities, etc. And they are uh, uh, also complementary to SDI, to uh, service delivery indicators, the new indicators at the World Bank. Um, and so the, uh, these tools, I mean, have been used uh, especially to try to, uh, as I mentioned, to identify various type of bottlenecks, uh, shortcomings in the uh, inefficiencies in and, and inequity within the, 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 in terms of actual allocations. Uh, so among the key findings, some have, have been about leakages, about uh, delays, about inequities. I'll, I'll just mention a few, show you a few examples of that, and as well as about informal payments, uh, high user fees, uh, short, different types of, of shortages in, in drugs or textbooks, etc. And uh, overall, like various different problems of accountability, information asymmetry within the, the system. So in terms of leakages, uh, just one example of that of, in terms of the importance of uh, looking at effective uh, transfers, effective uh, allocations of resources. This is for the Philippines and uh, it's a 2014 PETS. And we have uh, the, uh, the, the central ministry, it was, uh, the tracking was done on one fixed allocation rule, which was uh, the, uh, actually the maintenance and operation uh, budget, which was a, a, a fixed earmark uh, transferred to the schools. And from the, uh, that, uh, it, it represented about 68% of the, the, the school, uh, the, the ministry uh, budget for, for the pri uh, recurrent budget, non-wage non for the, the primary and, and secondary schools. And basically, only 77% of the transfer reached the schools, and and about 16% uh, of that leakage or, or that capture or that non-transfer was uh, because of the, the the central ministry of education was not transferring the allocation to the divisions, and then uh, the divisions another 7% was not transfer uh, in percentage point to uh, to the um, to the schools. So that's for the Philippines in. Uh, in Chad, uh, that's a, a few years ago in 2004, it was a pet in, in the, the health sector this time with a discretionary allocation. So there was no earmarked uh, transfer except down to the, 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 uh, the, delegate, the provincial delegations. And here, uh, the uh, uh, the we had the the, the, the uh, sorry the regional health delegation so there are f there were fourteen of them in Chad, and in red you have the uh, actual in uh, allocation and in blue, uh, the, I'm sorry the uh, the initial official allocation and in blue the uh, actual allocation that re that was reaching the uh, the the. the um, the regional de delegations, and uh, uh, and basically, and, and in yellow, it actually is the uh, the percentage. Basically, about 26, 27 percent of the transfer was reaching uh, the, the the provincial, uh, the regional delegations, and so uh, basically, uh, 73 percent of that was. Uh, 
was captured or was not transferred by the central government, and, and then from the regional health delegations down to the uh, health centers and hospitals, we could only measure 1% of the uh, central government uh, 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 health budget uh, to RP, uh, uh, that was reaching the, the, the primary health care uh, uh, facilities. So uh, this was very high level of, of, uh, of leakage. This in Morocco, uh, the tracking was done in 2011 on uh, actually the 16 main drugs sent from the uh, central pharmacy or the actually the procurement department uh, in uh, Rabat to uh, the different uh, the provincial delegations. And in th this is actually this is different from the previous one. This is actually the, uh, the percentage of leakage out of this. Uh, of the value of these of these drugs, and in blue it's the the leak the leakage rate from the ministry of the, the central ministry the dip, the central pharmacy down to the delega the delegations, and in red it's a leakage the percentage not reaching the the pharmacies uh, in the P at the PhD level in the in the hospitals. So basically, it was about uh, seventy. Uh, uh, about 70% of the value of the drugs were not accounted for at the, uh, in the hospitals and at the provincial level, at the uh, PhD level uh, from, these, uh, from the main drugs sent from, uh, from the central pharmacy. Uh, so this is for Morocco. In, uh, in Nigeria, th th there was a complex uh, tracking that this is the flow of, of funds toward uh, the PhDs from, so it's a federal system without, there's no allocation rules uh, toward PhDs. It's basically discretionary uh, from the, the federal government, also from the various provinces and as well uh, to, uh, from the, the local uh, uh, government administrations down to the uh, to the, the PhDs, the, the the primary healthcare uh, facilities, and basically, so we tracked uh, it was the, the it was in 2015, uh, and uh, the, giving the the very enormous problems of, of information with the system because there's no accountability also from at the different levels toward the federal government or toward the provincial government. There's no uh, standard, standardized or mechanisms to collect information. And also at the, the, the PhD level, the information is very uh, inaccurate and or, or lacking. So basically what was done, it was a different uh, public expenditure tracking approach. It was done, instead of done retrospectively based on records, it was done continuously uh, based on a uh, uh, real-time basis on for so it was done in two states for six months uh, to continuously track uh, actually all the flows of uh, financial uh, in kind uh, and uh, basically the uh, the results was that when we look at the 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 the, the share of expenditure for uh, primary health care so the, the key was that to try to assess these, this uh, the, the primary health care uh, transfer and the uh, basically the um, about 55 percent of the 50 percent of the budget both including or excluding uh, salaries uh, yeah excluding salaries was uh, was was actually transferred for supposedly transfer for uh, uh, primary health care and uh, ultimately only one we, we only one percent of that transfer was uh, uh, observed or accounted for at the PhD level through this uh, continuous tracking 
So uh, this is to say that basically uh, there are different types of leakages, uh, impo very important leakages in the systems. There are also these tools are also adequate to measure uh, different types of delays uh, or unpredictable uh, transfers in in the system uh, in in some states. Uh, let's in, uh, again in Nigeria, in one of the states, there was a three-month uh, overdue payment of salaries to uh, to the health uh, uh, health uh, of health employees in the health centers. Uh, so there are different types of, of delays that could be measured with these tools, as well as uh, we were discussing more this morning a little bit equity issues. So these tools are also equipped to measure uh, inequity with, within uh, the, uh, actual transfers uh, toward uh, the uh, and and the, the variation could be very substantial in terms of the of these uh, of these uh, inequitable transfers, and so. The, but these tools have been, uh, there, were, there are various criticisms, criticism about these tools in terms of, uh, especially some about methodology, but also in terms of uh, the, the capacity to bring changes in, ter in terms of policies. And to that, uh, uh, the, the key things, let's say, to improve uh, the, 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 the process of, of, of obtaining results, uh, basically, obviously, is to, to build ownership at the government level. Uh, commitment also extent potentially extent in terms of the of reform process, but also uh, 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 also uh, basically also uh, ensuring dissemination of results, ensuring participation of of, of the of the population, uh, but also uh, instead of doing standalone studies to embed uh, these type of surveys within a multi-year repeated uh, uh, process uh, to track uh, the uh, policy reforms and potentially uh, currently also to uh, to uh, integrate these type of studies with SDIs with uh, uh, service delivery indicators type of surveys which are more focused on the sc on school level and to, to identify in their service delivery these different types of bottlenecks uh, in terms of the future, also uh, there, there are issues of harmonization of these tools, making sure of uh, the methodology could be uh, um, reconciled across countries, but also in, over time to uh, to have uh, adequate indicators to uh, to follow. Uh, I was mentioning Nigeria with the continuous tracking, so clearly this is uh, in, in situation of very uh, poor information that it's a, it's it's an approach that could be followed. And uh, also, tomorrow there will be discussion about uh, new technology. Obviously, with, with pets, there could be uh, what we could call e-pets, like uh, with electronic tracking uh, technology that could be used to uh, in certain sectors, let's say in pharmaceutical, uh, to have traceability, to have uh, uh, the, 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 the very, uh, there are very important leakages in the sector. Though, so uh, new technologies, information technology with tracking, uh, tags, etc., uh, could be devised uh, to, uh, to, to, to measure these type of uh, uh, capture and to uh, ensure more equity and efficiency within the system. So this is a very rapid overview of these, uh, one of the tools that could be used to have more effective uh, data about uh, service delivery. Yeah. It seems to me that it's indeed one of the uh, tools in the toolbox that uh, it's very good to talk about a bit more. Um, we now have uh, Dr. Kiwanoka Hendrickson. Um, so she's going to talk about uh, the Ugandan health system, which is largely funded uh, from donors and, and conditional grant from the central government. And there is a history where it's been delayed at times, but there's also a history of improvements and a history to tell around the earmarking of these funds. So please go ahead. 
Thank you, Catherine. Uh, I think that there's no doubt uh, when I say that governments face challenges of making sure that financial resources get to where they are needed. And Uganda is not an exception to that. And I will speak from the health sector perspective and the health system. And in, in Uganda, as previously mentioned, it's a decentralized system. And therefore, the district health system is a self-contained segment of the national health system. And at this level, planning for intervention takes place and also service delivery takes place. And we have heard from uh, Kenneth and other speakers, and also Catherine mentioned, that Uganda has made a lot of progress over the years across the board, not only in the health sector where we've seen uh, improvements in uh, health outcomes and indicators right from infant mortality also with maternal mortality, although still we have uh, a long way to go. And also the way finances are transferred, they've gone through phases where it has been better and then, you know, worse and, and different uh, periods of progress have been made. Um, I will speak to some of my experiences, both through the work that I have done in Uganda at the subnational level, and also a little bit uh, working within that, that kind of uh, system and environment. Uh, one of the studies that we, we conducted, just to put it into perspective, was one that was trying to look at possibilities of building the capacity of district managers to use their own information or context-specific information to set priorities and decide which interventions will actually get the best results and use this process to inform the decisions in the planning. And this was done with a focus on child survival activities. So a set of tools were introduced to the district managers to help them analyze some of the data. And um, some of the data that was necessary wasn't available. So parallel data collection was done. And I think we've all heard about uh, the gaps in information that sometimes constrain um, decision making. So I, I will share some of the perspectives specifically related to to financing, but there are several things that are cross-cutting also related to service delivery, and I will touch upon a few of those. So firstly, I think it, um, this is a repetition of what everybody has said, just the sheer inadequate levels of funding. So I will give an example of the districts that we did a work plan analysis on, and this was specifically looking at child survival activities. And over a period of four years, so we took annual budgets for four years, in these districts, the per capita funding, so this is, was in the plans, so we didn't know exactly what actually ended up in the district was between 0 0.02 and 0 0.3. So, I mean, you can see the level of funding. It's very, very low. And these districts were selected because of the poverty levels and also because of their poor morbidity and mortality indicators for child survival-related um, services. So that, that, I mean, I cannot uh, underline it more. But on top of that, um, 
these funds that were really very small were not necessarily received on time in several of the <coughs> districts and there were several delays which made um, funding very unpredictable and um, in Uganda we have I'm not sure the number of districts right now but yeah there are over 170 so I mean for me to sit and generalize for every district is really not possible so the districts have increased exponentially within a very short time but generally speaking most uh, many of the districts we visited had uh, unpredictable funding and this was disruptive not only for service delivery but also the incentive to actually use the tools because the tools that we introduced although they were not very complicated meant that they had to set aside time to actually look at their information not the usual way that it was done you collect some data and you aggregate it at the facility move it on to the next level it's aggregated it goes to the ministry and and you never really analyze it so it took some time out of what they were used to doing but if the funding is unpredictable at the end of the day they're like why do we have to to bother with with this kind of thing and i think it's also an argument in this um setting where you have very mega resources actually use them in the best way that you can so un unpredictability affected actually the use of the information that could actually be done even at that point and thirdly in the districts we looked at approximately 47 between 47 to 97 percent of the funding for child survival activities came from donors and many of the times the donors had their priorities already set and sometimes they would be in line with the district priorities sometimes not but even in some districts there were geographical areas where service delivery was to be provided with this funding that the districts um, received and to some extent these priorities were negotiable depending on the funder depending on the district, the district health officer, what capacity and capability they had to renegotiate the funding that came from, uh, from the donors. But this was um, very different. Um, last but not least, the funding that came from the central government was earmarked, and we've had this uh, a lot. And it was difficult to reallocate this, this funding, and therefore, much as you encourage the district managers to set their own priorities different from those that are the national priorities the only public funding not most of it was earmarked so in the end it's uh, why do we have to bother looking at our own priorities when we can't really do much about it in terms of service delivery because we do not have the funds to actually um, do this i mean that said um they were uh, a lot of improvements from um, this process where the use of the context specific information led to dialogue by the district managers in a more confident manner to the donors.
And in some of the districts, we actually saw that priorities were shifted because the managers had the confidence, because it was backed by information to say that we need to do A instead of B, we need to go to this sub-county instead of this one. So in a way, it was a step forward to the use of the funding that they had, but because they could, they had the capacity then to actually argue for reallocation of this funding. So I mean, in the context of uh, PFM, we, we need to get resources where they need it, irrespective of these challenges. And so we need to look at this fiduciary control that we have from the ministries of finance, the flexibility, or perhaps that's not the way to go, and really look at, at uh, moving the decision making for resource allocation closer to the people who, who do the service delivery, in this case to the district managers. But also, as it has been alluded to by some of the speakers, looking at, at, at the outcome or the impact to the beneficiary of these resources, so in the health sector, we've been looking a lot at, at nominal coverage, so the capacity for service delivery and not really the effective coverage, which looks at the quality of service and how much impact it's actually creating to the beneficiary. I know it's complicated, but I think that we need to move um, to that step now that we have the opportunity where these tools are, are gaining a, a lot of attention. But also in, in low-income countries, we can't run away from the fact that between 40 to 60% of service delivery is from the private sector. So how can we use this PMF and harness that proportion that comes from the private sector? So I think that we cannot ignore the private sector, especially in, uh, in low- and middle-income countries where they account for most of the service delivery actually in, in some of the countries. And last but not least, um, I think when we talk about service delivery, even if it's for health, it's, it's, it's complicated, it's a complex playing field. And even when we talk about PFM, we need to, to acknowledge the complexity. Even if we're looking at service delivery in health, there's several systems, not only financial systems, that will affect service delivery. And we've heard about the political system, leadership, we heard about human resource. So how do we capture this complexity, only within the health system, but also across sectors and between sectors? Because Health is not only determined by the health sector, but by education, by water and sanitation, transport, and so on and so forth. So as we move the discussion, we need to look at the complexity at the level where service delivery takes place. Thank you. I can't agree more, I'm afraid. Um, I'm going to pass um, to Dr. Tsofa who, um, as I said briefly, is, do you want the mic? Mm -hmm. ah, the, the, and the clicker as well, I think. The clicker for the, yeah, there you are. Um, who is going to talk about financing health facilities in Kenya? And the two sort of big topics there are the direct finance, the direct facility financing, but also this new county governments. And now that's kind of interacting with each other. Please go ahead, put it so Good, yeah, thank you, Catherine, and thank you, colleagues in ODI, for inviting me to 
come and share the experiences we've gone through in Kenya in trying to struggle to get money where it's needed within the healthcare sector. The story I'm going to summarize really in about uh, six or so minutes. It's been a journey of more than a decade, actually, really. <laughs> Uh, so uh, forgive me if I kind of browse through very quickly some of the details. Eh? But uh, I mean, the, the rationale and need for getting money to where it's needed has been made in this conference, but has been made over many, many uh, years in several uh, discussions. And I think I don't want to dwell into that because I'll be like preaching into the choir in this, in this meeting. But specifically though, for the health sector, one point I would want to underline is inability to get money where it's needed in the front line and service delivery front line in the health sector actually affects quality of care and that's a matter of life and death for some of, uh, for, for some people and interestingly also is that actually the things that are needed for the money at the front line sometimes are very very small low cost things which have a very big impact on quality of care so it's things like a facility manager being able to have little money to pay their water bill so that they can have their running water to be able to wash their hands in between patients mm -hmm. or things like being able to fuel a motorbike to trace a defaulter within their, their locality. So it's really, really small money to do very, very small things, but the money is needed when it's needed and when it's not there, there's a complete breakdown in, in, in the quality of care. So that's by way of background. Then also just a small thing to not probably not many of you are familiar with Kenya, but the, the government that came into power in December 2002 that replaced uh, the Moi regime, the Kibaki regime, end of December 2002, did ride on a campaign for, uh, for, for universal primary education when they, when, uh, by, by 2003. And true to it, immediately, three weeks after they were elected, they actually, there was the beginning of the, 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 the academic year, and they actually, the president then directed that all primary schools should not charge fees, and government or a treasury should send money to primary schools without systems, without structures, and it was, it was described as chaos at that time, but it was actually done. So it just shows the importance and, 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 and need, uh, uh, the importance of goodwill and political will when you need to get money to where that. So based on the experiences of the education sector between 2003 to 2005, the Danish Agency for International Development, Danida, working with the Ministry of Health, actually found it very interesting and decided to pilot a similar model for health facilities, particularly primary health facilities within the, one of the regions of the country, the coastal regions of the country. So this pilot was done in about seven districts of the coastal region, and it was modeled around similar, within a similar model like what had been used in the primary free primary education model, which was getting uh, monies directly to health facilities, uh, bank accounts, and those facilities working together with facility management committees, which were basically made of community members within the catchment area, will prepare work plans, then execute the budgets, and prepare, I mean, account, uh, and uh, then account for that money to local district mechanisms. So this idea was to kind of bypass the existing then district bureaucracy, financing uh, a bureaucracy, and just get money to where it's done. So uh, that happened in 2000, was rolled out in 2005, and in 2007, our research group was invited to actually evaluate, uh, uh, to do a post-hoc evaluation of the, uh, the pilot experience uh, at the cost. And quite a lot of interesting uh, findings uh, came out from our evaluation. But basically, uh, to sum it up, is the intentions were actually achieved. And the intentions were 
to get money when it's needed. And it was very little money, but get it to health facilities when it was needed. Encourage community participation in decision making. Encourage transparency and uh, in the use of the money. And by the, uh, doing all that is improve uptake of, of, of health services. So the conversation that came up after, after that pilot following uh, uh, our evaluation actually led into a nationwide conversation that led into a decision to scale up that intervention at national level. So towards end of 2007, actually the national parliament passed a law to entrench what we call the health sector services fund, which was basically a funding mechanism now to fund health facilities directly into, into, into I mean, uh, directly uh, for operations and, and, and maintenance costs. So then we were involved a lot in the design of the national scale up after the law had been passed, and then uh, a decision was made to do it in I mean, to implement it in a phased approach, which was uh, started at uh, or rather the, the the phasing started at different levels of the health system. So rather than starting with all health facilities at the same time, uh, it was staggered at first at hospital levels and then health center levels and then finally uh, dispensaries. So by 2010, actually all health facilities in the country. Now we are receiving monies directly. The model is the same. Each one of them would have a facility committee made of people I mean, from the catchment community members from catchment area. Then working with the facility executive, who is the in charge and the management team, they will prepare work plans and budgets, and they will get money directly from national treasury into the facility bank accounts. And the district level or district managers would only play an oversight and supervisory role in managing that, and it worked quite well. But as Fate would have it, sure, a number of you would know, is around that time when we were achieving now uh, total coverage of the direct facility funding in 2010, another big political activity happened in the country, probably, uh, purely based on completely different political push, uh, which was the adoption of the new constitution. And within that uh, new constitution, uh, a key feature, a governance feature that uh, was adopted was the introduction of semi-autonomous county governments. So these semi-autonomous county governments were to come into effect in 2013, and basically they will be uh, semi-autonomous in, in the way that they will be elected directly by the people. They will get block grants, which is non-discretional funding from the equitable share from national government, and also levy local, uh, local uh, revenue, and decide on what to invest in where. But of course, within that uh, constitution, also the mechanism for national government to provide additional funding to, to counties for some uh, earmarked uh, uh, services. So those of us involved in the, in the, the, the uh, uh, governance space, uh, health sector governance space or public finance space, anticipated some bit of chaos by 2013. So we started a lot of conversation on how to entrench and, and, uh, and, and uh, basically ring fence the direct facility funding post-devolution. And of course, I mean, as you... Uh, predict, of course, that wasn't really a key priority, especially for the political uh, class at that time. But also, interestingly, even for those of us within the health sector, there was a lot of lack of agreement of what mechanism to use or what legal mechanisms to use to entrench or to, to, to kind of ring fence the direct facility funding. And so hence, when we went into uh, uh, dev uh, devolution, some of the major players who were supporting this uh, disagreed on how monies would go. So as at, at the beginning of devolution, 
there was actually a complete disagreement by uh, the, the, the key players, including those who were fine, was putting money into the initial basket, the health services fund uh, uh, basket. And so this band, some of them agreed to send money directly to the facilities, others, because the constitution acknowledged counties as the only accounting entity, decided that they will send their monies to counties and the counties will decide. So in that way, we moved into 2013 and started noticing across the country re-centralization of fin routine finance, uh, finance management in, in, in health facilities. We've documented this. But interestingly for me, is uh, especially following up this uh, post-2013, has been the quite wide variation across counties with its similar laws about how, how devolution has affected it. So some counties, using similar PFM, the existing PFM activities, actually went ahead to strengthen what was there pre-devolution. So actually started sending more money to health facilities. Other counties reversed and moved all the finance management uh, uh, responsibilities to county treasury. Other counties decided they are going to set up county-level subsidiary le legislation for them to, to, to be able to send money. So it's basically different people, I mean, different counties using similar environment or legal environment, interpreting things different and doing things. But I think also key among those is some counties who actually did subsidiary legislation to send money to health facilities, and several years down the line, they have not been able to send that money down to health facilities. So as, as I conclude, I think for me, uh, my reflections and lessons uh, f from this experience has been that uh, public finance management within the health sector or getting money to where it is goes way beyond kind of legalistic or legal and policy tools. It really needs a lot of understanding of what services need to be done and how to facilitate those services to be done and empowering the people who are charged with those uh, uh, responsibilities to be able to do that. And once you do that, then that's when you work backwards and develop the legal tools or policy tools to, to facilitate those. So I leave you with these two quotes, which is actually, this, this is part of the, our long-term tracking. Some work we were, I mean, data were collecting last, end of last year, actually. And this is just reflection contrasting two different counties about the experiences. One county where they've managed to continue uh, entrench uh, 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 direct facility funding, and one that has completely reversed uh, 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 the gains of direct facility funding. Thank you. Brilliant. Um, very interesting experience, I think. Um, all three, actually. But then now we really need to hear uh, from Marcel. I mean, one thing which struck me in uh, what Bernard said earlier, <coughs> only one of many things, but one, was that 70% was captured or not released. I mean, the reasons for that can be very, very different. And I think that's where you, you come in. Um, so please go ahead. Uh, thank you, Catherine. Um, also, my thanks to ODI for inviting me here. Um, I try to see very difficult because I, I seem to be the person who was pointed. Uh, every panelist was pointing cash should be released uh, on a timely and when it is needed and where it is needed. But uh, what I wanted to share with you uh, may, may be from even the morning discussions. I may need to start with um, actually the, 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 the proper planning. For me, it's something that touched my mind since I've been the accountant general because I'm in between uh, the upstream and downstream where the planning is needed, then uh, the software they, they are used. 
So the first thing that my country has done uh, was to come up with the vision. So everything that we are doing is done in accordance with the national uh, vision. So um, since 2000, uh, my country has implemented what we call uh, Vision 2020. So that vision has provided clear objectives where the country need to be uh, from 2000 to 2020. And that vision was looking to ensure that Rwanda should be uh, coming from the lower to the middle income country. So different strategies were put in the press, including the poverty reduction, the economic development and poverty reduction strategy. Currently we are implementing what we call national strategy for transformation. So uh, uh, during the development of those strategies, uh, what is clear and what is um, done by each and every sector is that uh, each sector, including the health and the education, they come up with clear objectives. So we have uh, sector strategies, which informs the, uh, the national strategy. But again, those strategies are linked with the national strategy. So uh, it means that you can't come up with uh, priorities which are not part of the national strategy. At the end, national strategy should be the guiding principle. So uh, apart from sector strategy, we have what we call the institutional strategy. So from now the sector, we have the institutional, where you come up also with the strategies that you want to implement. So you've got the goals, you've got the targets, you've got the indicators that you are going to work toward uh, the medium term uh, period. Not only the strategy, but also what we've developed is what we call the result-based uh, framework. So it's not only to have good targets, to have good results, to have good goals, but you need also to be accountable for what you are coming with. So the result-based uh, framework has made everyone to be responsible with uh, his or his own activities. So we introduced what we call the performance contracting, where everyone in the government, not even in the government, even in the private sector, even at the household level, they sign performance contract. How does it work? So uh, since all of us, we have the national uh, objective that we want to achieve, then it's cascaded down in, a, in the vision or in the uh, national strategy. Then down there, there is a sector strategy, then district strategy, then institutional strategy. Then those indicators, goals and targets are substantiated to everyone. For example, if I'm a, an accountant general and I have to ensure that the PFM reforms are working, so I have a performance contract every year which I sign, then my performance contract affects the permanent secretary, then the permanent secretary also gets uh, uh, his performance contract and the performance contract of the permanent secretary affects the performance contract of the minister or the minister. So it, it means that those indicators that we want to achieve and should be achieving are cascaded to everyone, including the individual working in the Ministry of Finance. Not only the Ministry of Finance, even any ministry. Then um, the issue becomes now how those uh, agreeing on the principles, target, and the goals, what, what, what is done. So we have what you call the consultation mechanism. Consultation mechanism are done at all levels. It's top-down and bottom-up. 
Uh, we have donor community. We have uh, household. Everyone participate in the consultation process. Then, once the consultation process have been concluded, so it's when you finalize the planning phase. So, at the end, we've agreed on targets, we've agreed on goals, then we go to the financing or the budget process. So, the budget process becomes very smooth because you've agreed on the priorities. You know each and every priority that you are bringing on the board should be part and parcel of national strategy. Now, financing becomes very easy. A project which is not feasible, which is not uh, linking to the national strategy is not funded. So you may come up with a good project, you are a minister of a particular ministry, but when that project is tested, it's not feasible, it's not uh, achievable, does not have any direct impact on the national agenda, it's not funded. So uh, the budget process itself becomes very easy because the planning process has already concluded. And it's very easy because now the Minister of Finance, it's not only the Minister of Finance, it's the Minister of Finance and Economic Planning. So everything is under one roof and the monitoring becomes very easy. Then, uh, in the morning we talked about the evaluation, or not the morning, the, 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 the afternoon session, the evaluation. So evaluation, it's also linked to the performance contract that you sign it. Everyone who signed the performance contract has to be evaluated. Say, for example, I give the, an example of household. It's very easy. The household, the performance contract of household, they are basic. It's cleanliness. It's health because everyone is interested. So if it is cleanliness, you need to clean your house. If it is education, uh, you need to ensure that your kids are educated. You need to stop uh, or to prevent the... Uh, the, the dropout from uh, the school. So those ones becomes culture today saying that everyone working within, yes, uh, yes, yes, thank you. Also uh, is monitored and is evaluated. Then finally, the key question that we, we asked now, money. So the financing of the, the, the budget, it's something that is very important. And uh, what we've been doing how the budget is financed, it's very important. From 2000-2020, our, our budget was financed, the large share of the budget financing was external resources, even grant. But to date, national budget is financed by domestic resources at 65%. Second, the priority is given to borrowing than to grant. Then thirdly, grant. So now you resource, the, your, your resources, the resources that are needed for implementing activities, you know that at 8% or 85% are predictable because either it's your own domestic resource or it's the external borrowing which you have control. When it comes for, uh, for uh, grants, again, donor don't dictate what to be financed. We have what you call the division of labor. So I know there are sectors like health and education which are uh, very sweet for different donors. So what is done for us to allocate sectors to every donor? If it's what bank has preferred to go to education, you will not go to health. So the health is given to someone else. Then at the end, you find more, all sectors are benefiting equally. Then finally, the donor is not financing uh, his agenda. He finances the government agenda. 
So allow me one minute to talk about now the, the decentralized units. Uh, back home, we have central government and we have local government. Provincial is not, uh, it's not another level of government, but uh, at province level, what we have is just the monitoring and evaluation of what is happening at the district level. So uh, if we take the example of the education, uh, the schools and the health uh, facilities, all those are decentralized at the level of the district. However, central government is still active as far as the education and health is concerned. Technically, Ministry of Health supervises what is happening at the level of uh, health facilities. Ministry of Education supervises what is happening at the level of schools. Ministry of Finance, as far as the public finance management is concerned, also supervises what is being done there as judicial uh, assessment. Then the district, they are in charge of ensuring the administrative process are working. So when it comes for resources allocation to decentralized uh, units, we have um, the Yamak transfers, which is common to everyone. We have the block grant. Then they have their own resources that are generated at the local uh, government level. So when it comes for block grant, in the past, we used to face challenges of releasing funds on a quarterly basis. But what came out is that those funds that are meant for service delivery, you can't delay them. So what happens is we, we try to bring or to differentiate between the block grant with the capitation grant, which are needed at school. Then they are released as soon as they are requested. Number two, teacher salaries and the... Um, health workers' salaries. Those ones are paid even before 20th of the, the month. If it is delayed, even the mayor of the district may be sacked because that one is moved, is touching the, uh, the service delivery because a staff who is not motivated, you can't, you can't deal with that person. So uh, the salaries are paid through uh, central treasury but are committed by the district. Then uh, when it comes for the marking transfers, those ones are transferred from treasury to district, then implemented at the service delivery units. And at the end, we installed accountability mechanism, which goes up to the level of service delivery. Auditor General is in charge of auditing. Central government, local government, even goes down to service delivery unit. So, uh, system that we use at central government, IFIMIS, is also used at district level and it's used at sub-district level. So you find health facilities are enrolled to IFIMIS. You find uh, schools, they have an automated system that is used. Then at the end, for us, it becomes easy to implement the PFM controls and assure accountability at the level of service delivery. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm pretty sure there will be more questions about how it actually works. <laughs> but uh, basically, um, there are a couple of things that struck me, and then I'll open to, um, to the floor first. If I can remind you, this is live stream, and please feel free to tweet whatever interesting thing you, you hear. Um, the first thing is that we heard a lot about, uh, in the different sessions actually, about the link that would need to be made stronger between PFM outcomes and service delivery outcomes. And that, I think, is something which I thought about as sort of a possibility of strengthening the convincing power of pets, if they could be also linked up with some kind of um, 
um, outcome toolbox, sector out outcome measurement toolbox, more systematically, which is a bit what you're saying about embedding um, these ones. The other thing we heard is that predictability is not enough, but some flexibility in how you can use the funds. And that, I think, is a very, very tricky one, because we also heard from well, both of you, I think, that somehow what gets prioritized in terms of releases is actually the earmarked money and less the sort of non-earmarked money. And I would say that this is raising its own challenges. Now, let me leave it at that and open the floor uh, to some questions. Uh, so there's one there. At the moment, only one. Let's start by there. Raise your hands when I Go ahead. Thanks. Hi, it's Joshua Jackson from Crown Agents. Um, I've done a, a lot of work in in countries, um, in ministries of finance. So I've got some first-hand knowledge of uh, cash flow issues, including once in Papua New Guinea, where I was on a committee that on a daily basis decided who got paid uh, across the government. That was real crisis. But most recently, I've been in Sierra Leone and Zambia, where there's been a real issue of, which we would address in the program, about budget credibility and reliability. And the fact is that the governments in those situations are being over-optimistic in terms of the revenue that they will receive in that fiscal year. So you end up with grand budgets that can't be funded. And that's a real issue. And it's just trying to work with ministries of finance and politicians to try and encourage them to come up with more realistic budgets based on more realistic revenue projections so that you can prioritize right up front and then you could have more smooth service delivery throughout the year rather than saying, health, you've got $100 million in your budget, fantastic, but then they only get $40 million at the end of the year. And so this is very important in terms of encouraging governments to come up with more realistic budgets so you can have more smooth implementation and better service delivery. Thank you. Um, there was one question somewhere there. Yeah. You raised your hands. Yeah, thank you. Um, Thomas Feiger, I'm from the European Commission in Brussels, um, dealing with uh, budget support and public finance management. Um, uh, thank you for the very interesting presentations and also case studies from the countries. I have, first of all, a question uh, with regard to the PETs, um, which um, um, well, several questions, in fact. Um, one is more, uh, you are talking about the leakages, and which, uh, with uh, partly quite uh, impressive figures of leakages. How do you um, establish the the leakages, and what kind of uh, what kind of uh, counterfactual or counterchecking process you have? Um, with the pets, because as far as I know, I'm not an expert in pets, but uh, uh, there is not really the standardized uh, methodology for pets uh, that we have for other uh, diagnostic tools in, in PFM. Um, the second point is how are they, um, how far they identify avenues for reform, or at least, let's say, causes of, uh, of leakages, origins of leakages that could help for uh, identification of reform. And my third point is uh, a bit your views on that. My impression is, I may be wrong, that um, 
pets were very popular around the end of the 2000s and around 2010 and somehow it seemed to me that in the recent years they have been used less and apparently part of it is maybe also due to the kind of political nature because it's very sensitive the, when you identify leakages. Um, so how do you deal with that in terms of um, using them or uh, uh, yeah, using them more widely and also in a in a sense that can be channeled constructively and and uh, channeled into PFM reform processes. Simon, <coughs> um, <coughs> Simon Gill from ODI. I wanted to share one of my worst failures, um, a great triumph, and I have a question. <laughs> one of my things I regret most, we, un when I worked for DFID in Tanzania, we spent a lot of money on an education pets. I think actually the cost was nearly £200,000. It did all the things that you expected a pets to do, and then it went nowhere because we'd had no political buy-in from the government, and in a way it was almost a waste of time. So I suppose the point I'm making there is, if you don't do that, you know, it's a waste of time. One of my great triumphs, it wasn't really a great triumph of, me, of mine, but we did some work in Sierra Leone, probably, Joshua, about two years before you, and one of the great triumphs is we got the budget director and the accountant general in a meeting together. That's all we did. <laughs> but the remarkable thing about it is they'd hardly ever met, um, and it was this point about budgets were being set which were way over the cash that the ministry had, and that was the thing. I'm, I'm amazed by Marcel's articulation, um, and I, I'm sort of I'm asking a I'm asking a question on behalf of Kenneth. Is is it really as good as you say? And 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 the reason I'm saying is it really as good as you say because my my question is at a district in Rwanda, as well as money coming from the centre, they're also dependent on money that they raise locally, and if they don't raise the money locally, surely they don't have the money. So I'm really questioning whether it's as good, the story is as good as you, you're telling it. But maybe you can't answer that question. But anyway. And then Rafin and then, yeah, or wherever. Yeah. But definitely Kenneth will get back to you. Okay, just, just two brief points. One, this uh, thing about pets and, you know, raising uncomfortable questions. I have some input. We, we don't have to, we, we can do pets now in India, so we do it quite routinely. It's not called pets, but uh, it's what they do. It's tracking surveys. And so one thing we found, which is quite interesting, remember in the morning I was talking about this big float. So what we found was leakage doesn't necessarily mean it's gone to someone's pocket. Mm -hmm. It could also mean sheer incompetence and the money stuck in treasury. So it's very important to give these messages out. It's not like, you know, to a politician. It actually could be that what you'll find is your money stuck somewhere and you can unstick it and take it out. So that's, uh, you know, sort of one. The second is, uh, since we have health professionals here, let me share something which is always unsaid. We all agree that we should improve healthcare education, but I'll tell you what I did on education in India. Uh, I found it would cost us about 7% of GDP. I'm willing to be 10% wrong. It would still cost us 6.3% of GDP, okay? So I said, this is not first to my wife and then to everybody else, this is not affordable. She said, of course, it's our children. And I said, yeah, but then uh, what do I do about 2% of GDP defense spending? So you can't touch that. So I'm now falling between two very, you know, sort of between two stools. I'm providing third-rate education to everybody. I could have provided a better education to somebody. 
but I chose to provide third-rate education to everybody. It's a real quandary. And because I start doing that, I start building fantasy worlds in the Department of Revenue. Because I have to, SDGs are putting pressure on me, MDGs are putting pressure on me. Everyone is saying educate all your children to a standard. Civil society is there. So I go to Revenue and say, give me some bloody taxes. And they say, yes, sir, of course. And then they don't. And then it gets worse. Now, this is actually a very good example of this PFM interface. It'll be very interested in knowing in the course of this conference and from you how we deal with it. So it's, there's nobody responsible. But it's a collective sort of falling between two stools that we must avoid going forward. Of course, my name is Kenneth Mugambe. Of course, Simon is trying to create an artificial conflict between Uganda yeah. and Rwanda. <laughs> So I want to clear the state that I didn't ask Simon to ask the question. <laughs> no, they, they, I think this issue of uh, flexibility and predictability is actually critical. And I believe uh, that is actually at the center of uh, you know, the whole discussion or you know, the, the nature of the PFM system you have. Because if you have a strong PFM system, then definitely you can afford to allow a degree of flexibility. Because as a Ministry of Finance, then you are sure that these resources, resources will be well spent we, at, at whatever level you are talking about. But the moment the Ministry of Finance that ha doesn't have that confidence, then you definitely not be in a position to allow flexibility. So as we discuss uh, you know, the extent to which we can allow flexibility and all those things, you know, let's first look at the kind of PFM systems that we actually have. Can they guarantee? you know, uh, uh, efficiency in terms of the resource use? Are we able to account for the resources? Are we able to put the resources to the right use? Now, whether it is our definition as Minister of Finance, but at the end of the day, you know, there is some common definition of what, you know, good use of the resources is. So that is really the point I wanted to make. Now, the second point I wanted to make is, uh, uh, when you talk of PFM systems, there must be some other complementary systems that we are talking about. Uh, you cannot look at PFM systems in isolation of other systems. Now, if you take the example of Uganda, we do send a, a medicine. medicine, medicine uh, the purchase of medicine across the whole country is centralized. Okay, So in terms of uh, at that level, you can actually uh, comfort yourselves as Minister of Finance that yes, I provided 100 million US dollars, and this 100 million US dollars actually has, has, has bought the medicine. But the question is, does that medicine actually reach you know, the service delivery point? You know, how much of the medicine actually expires in between? You know, how much of the medicine, you know, leaks? Even at the service delivery point, we have examples where you, you know, small items, you know, as, as gloves, for example, they reach, but immediately actually they reach, you know, they are sold out. Or even the drugs, even where the drugs are embossed. So you must have a system, you know, that is able to track that medicine beyond, you know, a PFM uh, system. Of course, in terms of pred predictability, I think the debate has now moved on because uh, uh, in our case now in the Ministry of Finance, we largely guarantee, you know, the resources for the, you know, local government level. You know, whatever money is put in the budget, both in terms of the timeliness, you know, the, t the time it takes, uh, you know, to reach the end user point, and also the predictability is largely guaranteed. So that is no longer, you know, a big problem. But as I said, PFM systems must have other complementary systems to be able to become effective. Thank you. Let me stop here for our first round, perhaps, and um, ask anyone among the panelists who want to start. Bernard, you had some specific questions, so maybe you can... Okay. Uh, so first, I mean, in terms of the definition of, of leakage, uh, 
it depends actually when there's an earmark or non-earmark type of transfer. When it's an earmark, it's very it's easily done as the share, which was earmarked, which does not for a specific uh, target, which is, does not reach destination. Uh, for, for instance, a school grant or a specific uh, PEEP, uh, health facility grant. Uh, but when it's not earmarked, then it's based on discretion. Then we, it, it's the, basically it's the the rate, the the, the share which uh, which is reported sent by, uh, let's say, by the district level, which is, does not reach or is not accountable at uh, the the PHC level. So it's it's a difference between two uh, two segments within the the delivery chain. So that's why when when it's based on discretionary, so we need to have two. Information on two points. You were referring to uh, so, but when when we measure that, obviously it's not necessarily uh, uh, corruption. It could be uh, so. Uh, it could be other types. It's maybe fungible uh, fungibility type of, of, of behavior. So it can, could have been reallocated uh, to a, a different sector. Uh, it, so these these tools, these pets are not audits, uh, and, and they don't try to recon to do uh, co complete reconciliation or identify where, where these uh, these non accountable uh, accounted for uh, uh, finances are, are used for, uh, in a sense. Uh, so, but it's not just that one a specific earmark transfer or some some uh, budget has not reached destination as it is uh, reported that it should have been. Uh, the, the the case of Tanzania is interesting. You mentioned it's Tanzania education, isn't it? So which, which year was uh, because there were four 2009, 2000. 2010, yeah. Okay, exactly because we did uh, actually also SDI in 2010 in Tanzania, which uh, which an element of of pets in it. There was a module, a pets module in it. But the um, in Tanzania there have been actually f uh, four or five pets in education done, with and each time from uh, I, I think the first one in 99, 1999. And uh, I'm not sure when is the last one, but uh, the government has been strongly uh, rejecting the results, and uh, and basically, uh, the buy-in was not there at all. At all. And uh, so, obviously, there are two cha two ways where government could be influenced. It's either through, uh, you know, f f basic result facts and and uh, analysis, which would uh, show them the the uh, right path, or through uh, citizens, or through uh, elections, or but basically, it seems that these two. Uh, uh, two ways are, are, were not uh, uh, functioning in Tanzania, but also I would say one of the main problems with, pet, with pets or other types of tools which uh, provide strong results in terms of inefficiencies or, or uh, various types of wastages or corruption is, uh, is the, the buy-in needs to be done initially with, I think, by the, the donors or by the agency supporting these type of, of tools. I, I would I would t and and make sh and and to uh, to have a buy-in also from the sector, uh, not just from Minister Finance, but also Finance Ministry, but also from the Education or Health sector, for them to uh, uh, to. Uh, to, to have some kind of commitment to, uh, to and and to, uh, to to develop an ownership about the the, the methodology the, the results and for them eventually to uh, accept the results and potentially put put uh, put in some reforms and then to track also the effect the impact of these reforms uh, I, I would cite one example where uh, it, something like that positive has, has happened with the pets recently in Thailand with UNICEF actually uh, that was done in the education sector. 
And there was a strong buy-in uh, done initially with uh, the, the government, with the, the Ministry of Education, and actually they selected uh, the, the, the the, tr the, the, the tracking uh, program, the, the tr program that was tracked, which was the main, uh, the free education program uh, to, for b basic education, but there was a very strong buy-in and, and following the results, they uh, adopted se a few, several reforms in terms of increasing equity through increase uh, the, the, the poor student transfer. Uh, there were reforms in terms of monitoring, in terms of, of guidelines. There were, so there were, there were s several uh, important uh, reforms done following the, the, the PET. So it's not always, but I, I agree that, uh, and, and on the donor side, very often, let's say if it's the, the, the bank or, 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 or other type of donors, uh, DFID or uh, UK aid, I mean uh, um, Australia aid or, or uh, other donors, they, they tend to use it as, uh, in a silo type of mode, and they implement the survey. They, uh, they and they don't use the results, or they don't really commit also on, on the on the donor side to use the, these results. For uh, let's say in Morocco, when we came up with these results, uh, th there was a two hundred million dollar program in the health sector at the same time. But despite uh, Seventy percent uh, disappearance. This was an unaccounted for uh, 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 medica medication from the, the central pharmacy, and still the the loan were, the, the went went through, uh, despite these um, anomalies, uh, very strong anomalies. Do you want to comment on the on the point that? Um Oh, well, he's not around. He's Can <laughs> so let's wait, let's wait, he's back, and then we'll, we'll um, address that question. But then there were other questions that perhaps, well, there was certainly a challenge to you, is the story as good as you told it. <laughs> uh, thank you. Actually, um, um, uh, if I may try, Simon, I'll, there's a time that we worked together, then I called him a philosopher, and said sometimes there was a more philosophy, but uh, in the context of what he mentioned, I, I may say that maybe I was looking, is there any pressure as an accountant general uh, sitting in between national budget, the forecast? Uh, my colleague has mentioned about the issue of uh, living that have been forecasted in, on no basis. So I may say that the pressure is there, Can, it can't be uh, eliminated 100%. But the critical part that I've mentioned, the proper planning, somehow reduced that pressure. It reduced the pressure in what, in what context? First, the priorities that have been agreed upon are the ones that are financed. So anything that is not a priority, when, which is introduced within the year, so you have the room to discuss. Because the minister cannot come and say, this is a priority, this is a priority. Yes, it's a priority, but it is not a priority that was availed to be among the priority number one because it was not part of the national planning, it was not part of strategic planning that was formulated. Number two, uh, these things happen, the, the planning phase is concluded by the, uh, the, that discussion between IMF and uh, macroeconomic units uh, back home. <coughs> So again, it's to ensure that the forecast that we are doing is really realistic. Then sadly, we've got a kind of that result-based framework. Revenue Authority back home, they have been, they, they work on the targets. So there is just the threshold that they have to meet, but beyond that threshold, there is 
the payment that they get. For example, if you corrected to this extent beyond the target, you are allowed to get this bonus. That one also motivates them to ensure that the, whatever they're going to, est to estimate is possible because uh, they don't underestimate, but again, they, they are realistic. When they are realistic, then the budget is, is more realistic. So what comes when there is, um, uh, because economic performance may result in a negative aspect. So what happens? The first thing is that there is short-term financing mechanism. The first one, back home, we are still using the central bank overdraft. That one may be some countries are not using it, but uh, we have uh, the financing mechanism where you use central bank uh, overdraft, but also is capped at a given level because it will not be beyond 10% of domestic resources that you collected in the previous year. Number two, uh, you have the treasury bills and treasury bonds that you can, you can put on the market. Then number three, when the worst comes to the worst, you cut. So what to cut now? The issue is what to cut. So with the discussion we had in the morning of the commitment controls, the treasury single account is very important because you can't lose money. For us, we don't lose money just for losing money, sake of losing money, but when money is needed. When you check from the bank account of a district, you find there is money, there is no release of cash. First, spend what you have, then we release additional funds. Number two, we implement what we call zero balance mechanism. Those central government ministries, departments, and agencies have ability to have bank accounts. Those bank accounts are meant just for uh, receiving uh, operational funds. So once such funds are not yet authorized, you can't access additional funds at central treasury. Then finally, we, the, co the commitment controls. It's very important, even that meeting where the national budget and accountant general meet together, me, I'm happy because system have made all actors in the public finance management work together. So today I have the Director General of National Planning who interacts with the system because all planned activities should be in the system. The national budget, they can't go and do the budget outside the national planning because the system is controlling them that there is no new activity that should be put in the system unless the one that was provided by national planning. Then finally, the action plan Procurement plan and the cash flow plans are based to one system. So it's now easier to know how much is needed by this institution because of this action plan or this procurement plan. Then you balance. This institution doesn't need money. This institution needs money because of the procurement plan that I can be able to access and I can control. Then um, finally, what this national budget said from Uganda, the controls mechanism and accountability measures. So, because the cash is bottleneck, we shall not get cash to, to send to, uh, to wherever they need cash, but we need to ensure that wastage of cash are, are limited. There's one point that I've, I've not mentioned relating to decentralized units. For example, the role of the Minister of Health when it comes for purchasing of equipment, it's not a health center that is going to purchase equipment, medical equipment, but there will be centralized procurement at the Ministry of Health. There will be centralized construction of schools at the Ministry of Education. Then you find that resources that you are decentralizing or you are just pushing down are limited. 90% of those resources will be 
salaries. They are the controller that the central government, and they are monitored because they should be paid on time. The last part that we mentioned is the how much local government is able to collect. So before we used to decentralize even the collection process where they collect, but you could find that it became a kind of uh, the, 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 the control mechanism for collecting those resources were not as strong as the one at the central government. Then what we did, Revenue Authority, Rwanda Revenue Authority, now is working as an agent for collection of revenue of local government. They have enforcing power, they have systems, then at the end you fi we find that revenues that were collected by local government is somehow doubling because they have a mechanism, control mechanism, they have uh, capacity to collect those resources. Otherwise, challenges are there when it comes for cash management, but we deal with those challenges as dealing with any other shock that may happen. Uh, in the conclusion, it's factual, but <laughs> it's result-based. You need to work to ensure that you can achieve what you want. Thank you. Thank you, um, I, I want to hear from these two on yeah. the issues of um, strength of PFM versus flexibility. I mean, yes. flexibility only if yes. PFM systems are strong. Yeah, strong I, 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 I want to make a very brief comment actually on, on that. I'll come to you. No, and you'll have the concluding word. A brief comment on that yeah. issue of the strength of PFM, and, and, and unfortunately, I, my brother has has left. But I think that this is quite an interesting conversation, having been involved in this discussion for many years. It's an interesting attitude I get from colleagues from Treasury all the time is when you ask for flexibility, they, uh, Treasury colleagues always, and with a lot of respect for people who work in Treasury, they have this attitude that, that the only ones who can protect public funds and any other public servant has an intention of misusing or misappropriating public funds, <laughs> including on matters where Treasury have no understanding of what should be prioritized. Oh, and why I'm saying that is when we were, uh, the story I, I highlighted, when we did the, I mean, when Danida did the cost pilot, it was, I mean, the, uh, there was a general agreement, and I mean, it's no-brainer that the big expenditure items, salaries of health workers, uh, uh, essential medicines, and major uh, infrastructure are done centrally. So you don't send money to facilities to do that because you need higher level capacity to be able to execute that. But the monies that were going were really very minimal amount of money for day-to-day -day operations paying electricity, paying uh, your water bills, paying the non-technical staff, buying clean, cleaning agents. And it was the tune, to the tune of between probably about $300 to uh, $500 in a quarter. And how Danida designed it, they only uh, designed it with about three accountability documents or accounting documents for the health worker who are managing that fund. And, and it worked very well over a period of, of five years. When we went into the national scale-up and Treasury were involved in designing that, Treasury introduced 13 documents for purchasing, just, just going to the local shop to buy soap to clean surfaces. <laughs> you account, and they are asking for this nurse health worker for 13 documents. I extremely So it took us a lot of conversation in trying to convince Treasury that you're actually missing the point. Because first... The money we are talking about is very minimal money, but it's extremely essential for service delivery. And the people who are doing it are doing it in, with the best intentions for health outcome. But also importantly is the involvement of communities in the processes of that. And it's quite interesting that colleagues in Treasury don't have any faith in other, <laughs> in other public servants and even in communities who are the taxpayers themselves. 
I think that's uh, <laughs> quite interesting and it's unfortunate that Kenneth is not here. But of course it's always good news to see that the funds are predictable now. And I know in Uganda they have changed the way funds go, so they come centrally and go directly to the facilities. So there have been a lot of changes that happen. But also going back to, to the question of who owns this financial, uh, public financial management uh, systems, I mean, it shouldn't be one group of people or one ministry, the Ministry of Finance, that should sort of own these processes of making sure that funds are used properly, because that's, that's really the most common argument for allowing for discretional use of funds or flexibility. We're not sure whether the other people can actually use the money in the right way, like you're saying. And I think that um, that's a, a discussion that needs to be had and, and share the ownership for these uh, management systems within uh, finance. Because like like in Uganda, similar to, to Kenya, we're not talking about very large amounts of money. And these monies, even if they're very small amounts, actually make unbelievable difference to service delivery and the beneficiaries. So I think it's very important that the people who make the decisions at the service delivery point have a certain level of flexibility because one, the funds are not very big, but they make a very big difference if you move them from one intervention to another, which might be completely genuine because the national priorities for one district might not be the same as the other, especially in Uganda where you have over 170 districts, it's almost impossible for the national priorities to fit neatly in each and uh, every district. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm afraid that the second round of question is going to be overbearing, but I want to also get back to Marcel, because he wanted to give a comment on this, on, on this very issue, the need to balance compliance with more flexibility. So tell us a little bit about that. And one thing I want to say is that I hope we're not back to um, this morning, but this discussion is also reminding me what Ratin was saying this morning. You know, is the Ministry of Finance like a librarian who doesn't want to lend the books or <laughs> doesn't want to have mobile libraries? <laughs> or please. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, actually, the question that was, I was asked, uh, there's a question that was asked, since you worked with ODI, because ODI helped us to develop the, our current public finance uh, sector uh, strategy. So the challenge now was compliance or value for money? So the answer for this one, for us, uh, this is the fourth uh, PFM uh, strategy that we are producing. And we are producing it now within the context of a country which is now looking not only for poverty reduction but on a strategy transformation. So our national strategy is for na it's national strategy for transformation. So we want to ensure the economic transformation. We want to ensure the governance tra transformation. We want to ensure the social transformation. Then now the issue is what is the PFM strategy that is required for uh, helping government transform in those different areas. So it's not that compliance part uh, only. 
So we need to comply with the standard, with the rules and the regulations. Though colleagues are not uh, happy with it, but the compliance that we are talking now needs to go beyond compliance. What is there? For example, we are saying, we used to say automation of uh, system. Tomorrow we will be discussing the automation of the system. In the transformation agenda, it's not only having an infamous, but how the infamous is helping for decision making, the information we are getting. Number two, it's not only having a PFM system, but how that system is integrated with other systems. For example, we mentioned about uh, the sector ministries, education. So we are not the, the, the expert in education matters, but we are expert in the PFM matters. How do we link the system in education to the PFM system so that even we solve the issue of saying them versus us? Because now we are asking the education people, tell us the number of students. If we have the number of students, we raise the cash toward those students. But the challenge has been we don't know the student numbers, or if they, even if they know, they just double the number because they want more resources. But now we are integrating the system in education to the financial <laughs> management so that our controls are priced, then they get what they want on time. Number two, we had objective on capacity building, PFM capacity building. But the challenge is if you want transformation, do you need just to go and learn capacity building? programs the way you've been learning it? No. We're saying in the new strategy for transformation, our PFM approach to capacity building should be toward professionalization. If I'm an accountant, I should be a professional accountant. Where I go to London, I talk with someone who has got the CIPFA. I go to India, I talk with someone who has the CPA. Number three, we were talking about cash basis of accounting, program-based budgeting, Legality audit, then the normal audit. But we're saying, since now we're talking about a national transformation, let's have a PFM that is going to be using accrual-based accounting basis, which is based to international public sector accounting standard. At that time, we will know that we are approaching the international context. Number two, when it comes for the audit, we are not going to only for legality audit. We will be focusing on performance audit, then when it comes for biting, it's not about input, activity-based, or program-based, it will be now performance-based budgeting. When it comes for internal audit, it's going to be risk-based approach. Finally, approach to our government business enterprise. Most of the countries, especially where you know in Africa, they are cost centers. Government they have, we have public enterprise, but you find they're getting subsidies day and night. But it should be the cash generating units. So our approach now to uh, public finance management reforms, it's more of ensuring value for money. So we consolidate the efforts that we've achieved in the previous strategy, but we look toward transformation, uh, PFM practices that can help to go where we want service delivery, value management, than just public fi financial management. Thank you.
Thank you, Marcel. Next chapter of the story, as it as good as, as you told it, is like in a, in a year or two. <laughs> um, I'm going to end here um, and just say thank you very much. Sorry for not having been able to take a second round of questions. I hope this session was interesting. And I need to hand over, I think, to Simon for the end of the day. Um, just to say thank you very much, all of you, for this. Um, well, big clap for the panel and uh, Catherine, yes. Just a big thank you for all of you for coming. I think particularly those of you who aren't, wouldn't count yourself as public finance professionals because the whole purpose of today was to have a conversation. And it's great that you've come to the room. I hope we've been nice to you. We've been friendly to you. Um, we've, we would like to invite you to, we've got I think some drinks outside, a glass of wine or a soft drink, so you're very welcome to stay, and you're very welcome, if you run out of things to talk about, talk about your greatest failure, I've got loads more to tell you about, maybe your greatest success, and if you're still short of things to do, decide whether Rwanda or Uganda or Kenya are the best exemplars of this agenda in East Africa. Okay, but thank you and we'll look forward to seeing you all tomorrow, thank you, bye. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.